CD5 Vimes slammed the watchhouse door behind him. Sergeant Colon looked up from his desk. He had a pleased expression. What's been happening, Fred? Colon took a deep breath. Interesting stuff, Captain. Me and Nobby did some detectoring up at the Fool's Guild. I've read it all down, what we found out. It's all here, a proper report. Fine. All written down, look. Properly. Punctuation and everything. Well done. It's got commas and everything. Look. I'm sure I shall enjoy it, Fred. And the, uh, and Cuddy and Detritus have found out stuff too. Cuddy's done a report too, but it's not got so much punctuation as mine. How long have I been asleep? Six hours. Vimes tried to make a mental space for all this and failed. I've got to get something inside me, he said. Some coffee or something, and then the world will somehow be better. Anyone strolling along Phaedra Road might have seen a troll and a dwarf apparently shouting at one another in excitement. A two, thirty-two, and eight, and a one. See? How many bricks in that pile? Pause. A sixteen, an eight, a four, a one. Remember what I said about dividing by eight and two? Longer pause. Two and nine. Right. Right! You can get there. I can get there! You're a natural at counting to two. I'm a natural at counting to two. If you can count to two, you can count to anything. If I can count to two, I can count to anything. And then the world is your mollusk. My mollusk! What's a mollusk? Angua had to scurry to keep up with Carrot. Aren't we going to look in the opera house, she said. Later, anyone up there will be long gone by the time we get there. We must tell the captain. You think she was killed by the same thing as Hammerhock? Yes. There are niner birds. That's right. There are one bridge. Right. There are four ten boats. All right. There are one thousand three hundred sixty-four bricks. Okay. There are... I should give it a rest now. You don't want to wear everything out by counting. There are one running man. What? Where? Sham Hager's coffee was like molten lead, but it had this in its favour. When you'd drunk it, there was this overwhelming feeling of relief that you'd got to the bottom of the cup. That, said Vimes, was a bloody awful cup of coffee, Sham. Right, said Harger. I mean, I've drunk a lot of bad coffee in my time, but that, that was like having a sore dragged across my tongue. How long had it been boiling? What's today's date? said Harger, cleaning a glass. He was generally cleaning glasses. No one ever found out what happened to the clean ones. August the 15th. Ugh, what, uh, what year? Shamhaga smiled, or at least moved various muscles around his mouth. Shamhaga had run a successful eatery for many years by always smiling, never extending credit, and realising that most of his customers wanted meals properly balanced between the four food groups, sugar, starch, grease, and burnt crunchy bits. I'd like a couple of eggs, said Vimes, with the yolks real hard but the whites so runny they drip like treacle. And I want bacon, that special bacon all covered with bony nodules and dangling bits of fat, and a slice of fried bread, the kind that makes your arteries go clang just by looking at it. Uh, tough order, said Harger. You managed it yesterday, and give me some more coffee, black as midnight on a moonless night. Harger looked surprised. That wasn't like Vimes. How black's that then, he said. Oh, pretty damn black, I should think. Not necessarily. What? You get more stars on a moodless night, stairs to reason. They show up more. It can be quite bright on a moonless night. Vimes sighed. An overcast moonless night, he said. Harger looked carefully at his coffee pot. Cumulus or Cyrenimbus? I'm sorry, what did you say? You get city lights reflected off cumulus because it's low-lying, see? Mind you, you can get high-altitude scatter off the ice crystals in a moonless night, said Vimes in a hollow voice, that is as black as that coffee. Right. 
and a doughnut. Vimes grabbed Harger's stained vest and pulled him until they were nose to nose. A doughnut as doughnutty as a doughnut made of flour, water, one large egg, sugar, a pinch of yeast, cinnamon to taste, and a jam, jelly, or rat filling, depending on national or species preference. Okay? Not as doughnutty as something in any way metaphorical, just a doughnut. One doughnut. A doughnut. Yes, you only had to say. Harger brushed off his vest, gave Vimes a hurt look, and went back into the kitchen. Stop, in the name of the law. What the law's name, then? How should I know? Why are we chasing him? Because he's running away. Cuddy had only been a guard for a few days, but already he had absorbed one important and basic fact. It is almost impossible for anyone to be in a street without breaking the law. There are a whole quiverful of offences available to a policeman who wishes to pass the time of day with a citizen, ranging from loitering with intent through obstruction to lingering while being the wrong colour, shape, sex, species. It occurred briefly to him that anyone not making a dash for it, when they saw detritus knuckling along at high speed behind them, was probably guilty of contravening the Being Bloody Stupid Act of 1581. But it was too late to take that into account. Someone was running and they were chasing. They were chasing because he was running, and he was running because they were chasing. Vimes sat down with his coffee and looked at the thing he'd picked up from the rooftop. It looked like a short set of pan pipes, provided pan was restricted to six notes, and all of them the same. They were made of steel welded together. There was a strip of serrated metal along one side, like a flattened-out cogwheel, and the whole thing reeked of fireworks. He laid it carefully beside his plate. He read Sergeant Colon's report. Fred Colon had spent some time on it, probably with a dictionary. It went as follows. Report of Sergeant F. Colon. Approx. 10 a.m. today, comma, August 15th, comma, I proceeded in the company of Corporal, comma, C.W. Sinjin J. Nobbs, comma, to the Guild of Fools and Joculators in God Street, comma, whereupon we conversed with Clown Boffo, who said, comma, Clown Bino, comma, the Corpus Derelicti, comma, was definitely seen by him, comma, Clown Boffo, comma, leaving the Guild the previous morning just after the explosion, full stop. Brackets, this is dead-bent, in my opinion, comma, the reason being, comma, the stiff was dead at least two days, comma, Corporal C.W. Sinjin J. Nobbs agrees, comma, so someone is telling meat pies, comma, never trust anyone who falls on his ass for a living, full stop, close brackets. Whereupon Dr. Whiteface met us, comma, and, comma, damn near gave us the derriere velocite out of the place. It seemed to us, comma, viz, comma, me and Corporal C. W. Sinjin J. Nobbs, comma, that the fools are worried that it might have been the assassins, comma, but we don't know why, full stop. Also, comma, Clown Boffo went on about us looking for Bino's nose, comma, but he had a nose on when we saw him here, comma, so we said to Clown Boffo, comma, did he mean a false nose, comma, he said, comma, no, comma, a real one, comma, bugger off, full stop. Whereupon we come back here. Full stop. Vimes worked out what derriere velocite meant. The whole nose business looked like a conundrum wrapped up in an enigma, or at least in Sergeant Colon's handwriting, which was pretty much the same thing. Why be asked to look for a nose that wasn't lost? He looked at Cuddy's report, written in the careful, angular handwriting of someone more used to runes and sagas. Captain Vimes, this herewith is the chronicle of me, Lance Constable Cuddy. Bright was the morning, and high our hearts when we proceeded to the Alchemist's Guild, where events eventuated as I shall now sing. These included exploding balls. As to the quest upon which we were sent, we were informed that the attached piece of paper, brackets attached, is in the handwriting of Leonard of Quirm, who vanished in mysterious circumstances. It is how to make a powder called Number One Powder, which is used in fireworks. Mr. Silverfish, the alchemist, says any alchemist knows it. Also in the margin of the paper is a drawing of the gone, because I asked my cousin Grabpot about Leonard, and he used to sell paints to Leonard, and he recognised the writing, and said Leonard always wrote backwards because he was a genius. I have copied same herewith. Vimes laid the papers down and put the pieces of metal on top of them. Then he reached in his pocket and produced a couple of metal pellets. A stick the gargoyle had said. 
Vimes looked at the sketch. It looked, as Cuddy had noted, like the stock of a crossbow with a pipe on the top of it. There were a few sketches of strange mechanical devices alongside it, and a couple of the little six-pipe things. The whole drawing looked like a doodle. Someone, possibly this Leonard, had been reading a book about fireworks and had scribbled in the margins. Fireworks. Well, fireworks. But fireworks weren't a weapon. Crackers went bang, rockets went up, more or less, but all you could be sure of them hitting was the sky. Hammerhock was noted for his skill with mechanisms. That wasn't a major dwarfish attribute. People thought it was, but it wasn't. They were skilled with metal all right, and they made good swords and jewellery, but they weren't too technical when it came to things like cogwheels and springs. Hammerhock was unusual. So, supposing there was a weapon. Supposing there was something about it that was different, strange, terrifying. No, that couldn't be it. It'd either end up all over the place, or it'd be destroyed. It wouldn't end up in the Assassin's Museum. What got put in museums? Things that hadn't worked, or had got lost, or ought to be remembered. So where's the sense in putting our firework on show? There had been lots of locks on the door, so not a museum you just wandered into then. Maybe you had to be a high-up assassin, and one day one of the guild leaders would take you down there at dead of night and say, and say... For some reason, the face of the patrician loomed up at this point. Once again, Vimes felt the edge of something, some fundamental, central thing. Where'd he go? Where'd he go? There was a maze of alleys around the doors. Cuddy leaned against a wall and fought for breath. There he go, shouted Detritus, along Wheelbourne Lane. He lumbered off in pursuit. Vimes put down his coffee cup. Whoever had shot those lead balls at him had been very accurate across several hundred yards and had got off six shots faster than anyone could fire an arrow. Vimes picked up the pipes. Six little pipes, six shots. And you could carry a pocket full of these things. You could shoot further, faster, more accurately than anyone else with any other kind of weapon. So, a new type of weapon, much, much faster than a bow. The assassins wouldn't like that. They wouldn't like that at all. They weren't even keen on bows. The assassins preferred to kill up close. So they'd put the... the gone safely under lock and key. The gods alone knew how they'd come by it in the first place, and a few senior assassins would know about it, and they'd pass on the secret. Beware of things like this. Down there! He went into Grope Alley! Slow down! Slow down! Why? said Detritus. It's a dead end! The two watchmen lumbered to a halt. Cuddy knew that he was currently the brains of the partnership, even though Detritus was presently counting, his face beaming with pride, the stones in the wall beside him. Why had they chased someone halfway across the city? Because they'd run away? No one ran away from the watch. Thieves just flashed their licenses. Unlicensed thieves had nothing to fear from the watch since they'd saved up all their fear for the thieves' guild. Assassins always obeyed the letter of the law, and honest men didn't run away from the watch. Running away from the watch was downright suspicious. The axiom, honest men have nothing to fear from the police, is currently under review by the Axiom's Appeal Board. The origin of Grope Alley's name was fortunately lost in the celebrated mists of time, but it had come to be deserved. It had turned into a kind of tunnel as upper stories were built out and over it, leaving a few inches of sky. Cuddy peered around the corner into the gloom. Click, click. It came from deep in the darkness. Detritus? Yeah? Did he have any weapons? Just a stick, one stick. Only I smell fireworks. Cuddy pulled his head back very carefully. There had been the smell of fireworks in Hammerhock's workshop, and Mr. Hammerhock ended up with a big hole in his chest and a sense of named dread, which is much more specific and terrifying than nameless dread, was stealing over Cuddy. It was similar to the feeling you get when you're playing a high-stakes game and your opponent suddenly grins and you realise that you don't know all the rules, but you do know you'll be lucky to get out of this with, if you're very fortunate, your shirt. On the other hand, he could picture Sergeant Colon's face. We chased this man into an alley, Sarge, and then we came away. He drew his sword. Lance Constable Detritus! Yes, Lance Constable Cuddy. Follow me. Why? The damn thing was made of metal, wasn't it? Ten minutes in a hot crucible and that'd be the end of the problem. Something like that, something dangerous, why not just get rid of it? 
Why keep it? But that wasn't human nature, was it? Sometimes things were too fascinating to destroy. He looked at the strange metal tubes. Six short pipes welded together, sealed firmly at one end. There was a small hole in the top side of each of the pipes. Vimes slowly picked up one of the lumps of lead. The alley twisted once or twice, but there were no other alleys or doors off it. There was one at the far end. It was larger than a normal door and heavily constructed. Where are we? whispered Cuddy. Don't know, said Detritus. Back of the dock somewhere. Cuddy pushed open the door with his sword. Cuddy? Yeah. We walked seven T nine steps. That's nice. Cold air rushed past them. Meat store, whispered Cuddy. Someone picked the lock. He slipped through and into a high, gloomy room as large as a temple, which in some ways it resembled. Faint light crept through the high, ice-covered windows. From rack upon rack, all the way to the ceiling, hung meat carcasses. They were semi-transparent, and so very cold, Cuddy's breath turned to crystals in the air. Oh, my, said Detritus. I think this the pork futures warehouse in Moorpork Road. What? Used to work here, said the troll. Used to work everywhere. Go away, you stupid troll, you too thick, he added gloomily. Is there any way out? The main door is in Moorpork Street, but no one comes in here for months. Till pork exists. Probably no other world in the multiverse has warehouses for things which only exist in potentia. But the Pork Futures warehouse in Ankh Moorpork is a product of the patricians' rules about baseless metaphors, the literal-mindedness of citizens who assume that everything must exist somewhere, and the general thinness of the fabric of reality around Ankh, which is so thin that it's as thin as a very thin thing. The net result is that trading in Pork Futures, in pork that doesn't exist yet, led to the building of the warehouse to store it until it does. The extremely low temperatures are caused by the imbalance in the temporal energy flow. At least, that's what the wizards in the High Energy Magic Building say. And they've got proper pointy hats and letters after their name, so they know what they're talking about. Cuddy shivered. You in here, he shouted. It's the watch. Step out now. A dark figure appeared from between a couple of pre-pigs. Now what do we do? said Detritus. The distant figure raised what looked like a stick, holding it like a crossbow, and fired. The first shot zinged off Cuddy's helmet. A stony hand clamped onto the dwarf's head, and Detritus pushed Cuddy behind him. But then the figure was running, running towards them, still firing. Detritus blinked. Five more shots, one after the other, punctured his breastplate. And then the running man was through the open door, slamming it behind him. Captain Vames, he looked up. It was Captain Quirk of the Day Watch with a couple of his men behind him. Yes. You come with us and give me your sword. What? I think you heard me, Captain. Look, it's me, Quirk. Sam Vimes, don't be a fool. I ain't a fool. I've got men with crossbows. Men. It's you that'd be the fool if you resist arrest. Oh, I'm under arrest, only if you don't come with us. The patrician was in the oblong office, staring out of the window. The multi-belled cacophony of five o'clock was just dying away. Vimes saluted. From the back, Vetinari looked like a carnivorous flamingo. Ah, Vimes, he said without looking round. Come here, will you, and tell me what you see? Vimes hated guessing games, but he joined the patrician anyway. The oblong office had a view over half the city, although most of it was rooftops and towers. Vimes's imagination peopled the towers with men holding guns. The patrician would be an easy target. What do you see out there, Captain? City of Ankh-Morpork, sir, said Vimes, keeping his expression carefully blank. And does it put you in mind of anything, Captain? Vimes scratched his head. If he was going to play games... He was going to play games. Well, sir, when I was a kid, we owned a cow once, and one day it got sick, and it was always my job to clean out the cow shed, and it reminds me of a clock, said the patrician. Big wheels, little wheels, all clicking away. 
The little wheels spin, and the big wheels turn, all at different speeds, you see. But the machine works. And that is the most important thing. The machine keeps going. Because when the machine breaks down... He turned suddenly, strode to his desk with his usual predatory stalk, and sat down. Or again, sometimes a piece of grit might get into the wheels, throwing them off balance. One speck of grit. Vetinari looked up and flashed Vimes a mirthless smile. I won't have that. Vimes stared at the wall. I believe I told you to forget about certain recent events, Captain. Sir. Yet it appears that the watch have been getting in the wheels. Sir. What am I to do with you? Good say, sir. Vimes minutely examined the wall. He wished Carrot was here. The lad might be simple, but he was so simple that sometimes he saw things that the subtle missed. And he kept coming up with simple ideas that stuck in your mind. Policeman, for example. He'd said to Vimes one day, while they were proceeding along the street of small gods, Do you know where policeman comes from, sir? Vimes hadn't. Polis used to mean city, said Carrot. That's what policeman means, a man for the city. Not many people know that. The word polite comes from polis too. It used to mean the proper behaviour for someone living in a city. Man of the city. Carrot was always throwing out stuff like that. Like copper. Vimes had believed all his life that the watch were called coppers because they carried copper badges. But no, said Carrot, it comes from the old word capere, to capture. Carrot read books in his spare time. Not well. He'd have real difficulty if you cut his index finger off. But continuously. And he wandered around Ankh Morpork on his day off. Captain Vimes, Vimes blinked. Sir, you have no concept of the delicate balance of the city. I'll tell you one more time. This business with the assassins and the dwarf and this clown. You are to cease involving yourself. No, sir, I can't. Give me your badge. Vimes looked down at his badge. He never really thought about it. It was just something he'd always had. It didn't mean anything very much, really, one way or the other. It was just something he'd always had. My badge. And your sword. Slowly, with fingers that suddenly felt like bananas, and bananas that didn't belong to him at that, Vimes undid his sword belt. And your badge. Um... Not my badge. Why not? Um, because it's my badge. But you're resigning anyway when you get married. Right. Their eyes met. How much does it mean to you? Vimes stared. He couldn't find the right words. It was just that he'd always been a man with a badge. He wasn't sure he could be one without the other. Finally, Lord Vetinari said... Very well, I believe you're getting married at noon tomorrow. His long fingers picked up the guilt-embossed invitation from the desk. Yes, you can keep your badge then, and have an honourable retirement, but I'm keeping the sword, and the day watch will be sent down to the yard shortly to disarm your men. I'm standing the night watch down, Captain Vimes. In due course I might appoint another man in charge, at my leisure. Until then, you and your men can consider yourselves... On leave. The day watch? A bunch of... I'm sorry? Yes, sir. One infraction, however, and the badge is mine. Remember. Cuddy opened his eyes. You're alive, said Detritus. The dwarf gingerly removed his helmet. There was a gouge in the rim and his head ached. It looks like a mild skin abrasion, said Detritus. A what? Oh, Cuddy grimaced. What about you, anyway? He said. There was something odd about the troll. It hadn't quite dawned on him what it was, but there was definitely something unfamiliar, quite apart from all the holes. I suppose the armour was some help, said Detritus. He pulled at the straps of his breastplate. Five discs of metal slid out at around belt level. If it hadn't slowed them down, they'd be seriously abraded. "'What's up with you? Why are you talking like that?' "'Like what, pray?' "'What happened to the me-big-troll talk, no offence meant?' 
I'm not sure I understand. Cuddy shivered and stamped his feet to keep warm. Let's get out of here. They trotted to the door. It was shut fast. Can you knock it down? No, if this place wasn't trawl-proof, it'd be empty. Sorry. Detritus? Yes. Are you all right? Only there's steam coming off your head. I do feel, um. Detritus blinked. There was a tinkle of falling ice. Odd things were happening in his skull. Thoughts that normally ambulated sluggishly around his brain were suddenly springing into vibrant, coruscating life. And there seemed to be more and more of them. My goodness, he said to no one in particular. This was a sufficiently untroll like comment that even Cuddy, whose extremities were already going numb, stared at him. I do believe, said Detritus, that I am genuinely cogitating. How very interesting. What do you mean? More ice cascaded off Detritus as he rubbed his head. Of course, he said, holding up a giant finger. Superconductivity. What? You see, brain of impure silicon. Problem of heat dissipation. Daytime temperature too hot. Processing speed slows down. Weather gets hotter. Brain stops completely. Trolls turn to stone until nightfall. I.e. colder temperature, however lower temperature enough, brain operates faster and... I think I'm going to freeze to death soon, said Cuddy. Detritus looked around. There are small glazed apertures up there, he said. Too high to re-ing in stone shoulders, mumbled Cuddy, slumping down further. Ah, but my plan involves throwing something through them to attract help, said Detritus. What plan? I have, in fact, eventuated twenty-three, but this one has a ninety-seven percent chance of success, said Detritus, beaming. Hadn't got anything to throw, said Cuddy. I have, said Detritus, scooping him up. Do not worry, I can compute your trajectory with astonishing precision, and then all you will need to do is fetch Captain Vimes or Carrot or someone. Cuddy's feeble protests described an arc through the freezing air and vanished along with the window glass. Detritus sat down again. Life was so simple when you really thought about it, and he really was thinking. He was 76% sure he was going to get at least seven degrees colder. Mr. Cut-Me-Own-Throat-Dibbler purveyor, merchant venturer, and all-round salesman, had thought long and hard about going into ethnic foodstuffs, but it was a natural career procession. The old sausage-in-a-bun trade had been falling off lately, while there were all these trolls and dwarfs around with money in their pockets, or wherever it was trolls kept their money, and money in the possession of other people had always seemed to throat to be against the proper natural order of things. Dwarfs were easy to cater for, Rat on a stick was simple enough, although it meant a general improvement in Dibbler's normal catering standards. On the other hand, trolls were basically, when you got right down to it, no offence meant, uh, speak as you find, uh, basically they were um, walking rocks. He'd sought advice about troll food from Chrysoprase, who was also a troll, although you'd hardly know it any more. He'd been around humans so long he wore a suit now, and, as he said, had learned all kinds of civilised things, like extortion, money lending at 300% interest per month, and stuff like that. Chrysoprase might have been born in a cave above the snow line on some mountain somewhere, but five minutes in Ankh-Morpork, and he'd fitted right in. Dibbler liked to think of Chrysoprase as a friend. You'd hate to think of him as an enemy. Throat had chosen today to give his new approach a try. He pushed his hot food barrow through the streets, broad and narrow, crying, Sausages! Hot sausages in a bun! Meat pies! Get them while they're hot! This was by way of a warm-up. The chances of a human eating anything off Dibbler's barrow, unless it was stamped flat and pushed under the door after two weeks on a starvation diet, was by now remote. He looked around conspiratorially. There were always trolls working in the docks, and took the cover off a fresh tray. Now then, what was it? Oh, yes. Dolomitic conglomerates. Get core dolomitic conglomerates here. Manganese nodules. Manganese nodules. Get them while they're, uh, while they're nodule-shaped. He hesitated a bit and then rallied. Pumice. Pumice. Two for a dollar. Roast limestones. 
A few trolls wandered up to stare at him. You, sir, you look hungry, said Dibbler, grinning widely at the smallest troll. Why not try our shale on a bun? Mmm, taste that alluvial deposit, know what I mean? C.M.O.T. Dibbler had a number of bad points, but species prejudice was not one of them. He liked anyone who had money, regardless of the colour and shape of the hand that was proffering it. For Dibbler believed in a world where a sapient creature could walk tall, breathe free, pursue life, liberty and happiness, and step out towards the bright new dawn, if they could be persuaded to gobble something off Dibbler's hot food tray at the same time, this was all to the good. The troll inspected the tray suspiciously and lifted up a bun. Ugh, yuck, he said. It's all got ammonites in it, yuck. Pardon, said Dibbler. This shale, said the troll, is stale. Lovely and fresh, just like Mother used to hew. Yeah, and this bloody quartz all through this granite, said another troll, towering over Dibbler. Clogs the arteries, quartz. He slammed the rock back on the tray. The trolls ambled off, occasionally turning around to give Dibbler a suspicious look. Stale! Stale! How can it be stale? It's rock! shouted Dibbler after them. He shrugged. Oh well, the hallmark of a good businessman was knowing when to cut your losses. He closed the lid of the tray and opened another one. Whole food! Whole food! Rat! Rat on a stick! Rat in a bun! Get them while they're dead! Get caught! There was a crash of glass above him, and Lance Constable Cuddy landed headfirst in the tray. There's no need to rush. Plenty for everyone, said Dibbler. Pull me out, said Cuddy, in a muffled voice, or pass me the ketchup. Dibbler hauled on the dwarf's boots. There was ice on them. Just come down the mountain, have you? Where's the man with the key to this warehouse? If you liked our rat, then why not try our fine selection of... Cuddy's axe appeared almost magically in his hand. I'll cut your knees off, he said. Gear heart sock of the butcher's guild is what you want. Right. Now please take the axe away. Cuddy's boots skidded on the cobbles as he hurried off. Dibbler peered at the broken remains of the cart... His lips moved as he calculated. Here, he shouted. You owe, hey, you owe me for three rats. Lord Vetinari had felt slightly ashamed when he watched the door close behind Captain Vimes. He couldn't work out why. Of course, it was hard on the man, but it was the only way. He took a key from a cabinet by his desk and walked over to the wall. His hands touched a mark on the plaster that was apparently no different from a dozen other marks, but this one caused a section of wall to swing aside on well-oiled hinges. No one knew all the passages and tunnels hidden in the walls of the palace. It was said that some of them went a lot further than that. And there were any amount of old cellars under the city. A man with a pickaxe and a sense of direction could go where he liked just by knocking down forgotten walls. He walked down several narrow flights of steps and along a passage to a door which he unlocked. It swung back on well-oiled hinges. It was not exactly a dungeon. The room on the other side was quite airy and well-lit by several large but high windows. It had a smell of wood shavings and glue. Look out! The patrician ducked. Something bat-like clicked and whirred over his head, circled erratically in the middle of the room, and then flew apart into a dozen jerking pieces. Oh, dear, said a mild voice. Back to the drawing tablet. Uh, good afternoon, your lordship. "'Good afternoon, Leonard,' said the patrician. "'What was that?' I, "'I call it a flapping-wing flying device,' said Leonard de Quirm, "'getting down off his launching stepladder. "'It works by gutter-purchase strips twisted tightly together, "'but um, not very well, I'm afraid.' "'Leonard of Quirm was not in fact all that old.' He was one of those people who started looking venerable around the age of thirty, and would probably still look about the same at the age of ninety. He wasn't exactly bald, either. His head had just grown up through his hair, rising like a mighty rock dome through heavy forest. Inspirations sleet through the universe continuously. Their destination, as if they cared, is the right mind in the place at the right time. They hit the right neuron... There's a chain reaction, and a little while later someone is blinking foolishly in the TV lights and wondering how the hell he came up with the idea of pre-sliced bread in the first place. 
Leonard of Quirm knew about inspirations. One of his earliest inventions was an earthed metal nightcap, worn in the hope that the damn things would stop leaving their white-hot trails across his tortured imagination. It seldom worked. He knew the shame of waking up to find the sheets covered with nocturnal sketches of unfamiliar siege engines and novel designs for apple-peeling machines. The de Quirms had been quite rich, and young Leonard had been to a great many schools where he had absorbed a ragbag of information despite his habit of staring out of the window and sketching the flight of birds. Leonard was one of those unfortunate individuals whose fate it was to be fascinated by the world, the taste, shape and movement of it. He fascinated Lord Vetinari as well, which is why he was still alive. Some things are so perfect of their type that they are hard to destroy. One of a kind is always special. He was a model prisoner. Give him enough wood, wire, paint, and above all, give him paper and pencils, and he stayed put. The patrician moved a stack of drawings and sat down. These are good, he said. What are they? My cartoons, said Leonard. This is a good one of the little boy with his kite stuck in a tree, said Lord Vetinari. Thank you. May I make you some tea? I'm afraid I don't see many people these days, apart from the man who, who, who oils the hinges. I've come to... The patrician stopped and prodded at one of the drawings. There's a piece of yellow paper stuck to this one, he said suspiciously. He pulled at it. It came away from the drawing with a faint sucking noise, and then stuck to his fingers. On the note in Leonard's crabby backward script were the words, Crow ot smees sit omem. "'Oh, I'm rather pleased with that,' said Leonard. "'I call it my handy note-scribbling piece of paper "'with glue that comes unstuck when you want.' "'The patrician played with it for a while. "'What's the glue made of?' "'Boiled slugs.' "'The patrician pulled the paper off one hand. "'It stuck to his other hand. "'Is that what you came to see me about?' said Leonard. "'No, I came to talk to you.' said Lord Vetinari, about the gone. Oh, dear, I'm very sorry. I'm afraid it has escaped. My goodness, I thought you said you'd done away with it. I gave it to the assassins to destroy. After all, they pride themselves on the artistic quality of their work. They should be horrified at the idea of anyone having that sort of power. But the damn fools did not destroy it. They thought they could lock it away. And now they've lost it. They didn't destroy it? Apparently not, the fools. And nor did you? I wonder why. I, uh, you know, I don't know. I should never have made it. It was merely an, an, an application of, of principles. Ballistics, you know, simple aerodynamics, chemical power, some rather good alloying, although I say it myself, and I'm rather proud of the rifling idea. I had to make a quite complicated tool for that, you know. Milk? Sugar? No, thank you. People are searching for it, I trust. The assassins are, but they won't find it. They don't think the right way. The patrician picked up a pile of sketches of the human skeleton. They were extremely good. Oh, dear. So I am relying on the watch. This would be the Captain v Vimes you have spoken of. Lord Vetinari always enjoyed his occasional conversations with Leonard. The man always referred to the city as if it was another world. Yes. I hope you have impressed upon him the importance of the task. In a way... I've absolutely forbidden him to undertake it. Twice. Leonard nodded. Ah, I think I understand. I hope it works. He sighed. I suppose I should have dismantled it, but it was so clearly a made thing. I, I had this strange fancy I was merely assembling something that already existed. Sometimes I wonder where I got the whole idea. It seemed, I don't know, sacrilege, I suppose, to dismantle it. It'd be like dismantling a person. Biscuit? Dismantling a person is sometimes necessary, said Lord Vetinari. This, of course, is a point of view, said Leonard de Quirm, politely. You mentioned sacrilege, said Lord Vetinari. Normally that involves gods of some sort, does it not? 
Did I use the word? I can't imagine there is a god of gons. It is quite hard, yes. The patrician shifted uneasily, reached down behind him, and pulled out an object. What, he said, is this? Oh, I wondered where that had gone, said Leonard. It's a model of my spinning up into the air machine. It has probably been gathered that although Leonard de Quirm was absolutely the greatest technological genius of time, he was a bit of a detritus when it came to thinking up names. Lord Vetinari prodded the little rotor. Would it work? Oh, yes, said Leonard. He sighed. If you can find one man with the strength of ten men who can turn the handle at about one thousand revolutions a minute. The patrician relaxed in a way which only then drew gentle attention to the foregoing moment of tension. "'Now there is in this city,' he said, "'a man with a gun. "'He has used it successfully once and almost succeeded a second time. "'Could anyone have invented the gun?' "'No,' said Leonard. "'I am a genius.' "'He said it quite simply. "'It was a statement of fact.' Understood. But once a gun has been invented, Leonard, how much of a genius needs someone be to make the second one? The rifling technique requires considerable finesse, and the cocking mechanism that slides the boulette assembly is finely balanced. And, of course, the end of the barrel must be very... Leonard saw the patrician's expression and shrugged. He must be a clever man, he said. The city is full of... "'Clever men,' said the patrician, "'and dwarfs. "'Clever men and dwarfs who tinker with things.' "'I am so very sorry. "'They never think. "'Indeed.' "'Lord Vetinari leaned back and stared at the skylight. "'They do things like open the three jolly luck takeaway fish bar "'on the site of the old temple in Dagon Street, "'on the night of the winter solstice "'when it also happens to be full moon.' That's people for you, I'm afraid. I never did find out what happened to Mr. Hong. Poor fellow. And then there's the wizards. Tinker, tinker, tinker. Never think twice before grabbing a thread of the fabric of reality and giving it a pull. Shocking. The alchemists? Their idea of civic duty is mixing up things to see what happens. I hear the bangs, even here. And then, of course... Along comes someone like you. I really am terribly sorry. Lord Vetinari turned the model flying machine over and over in his fingers. You dream of flying, he said. Oh, yes. Then men would be truly free. From the air there are no boundaries. There could be no more war, because the sky is endless. How happy we would be if we could but fly. Vetinari turned the machine over and over in his hands. Yes, he said. I dare say we would. I had tried clockwork, you know. I'm sorry. I was thinking about something else. I meant clockwork to power my flying machine, but it won't work. Oh, there's a limit to the power of a spring, no matter how tightly one winds it. Oh, yes. "'And you hope that if you wind a spring one way, "'all its energies will unwind the other way, "'and sometimes you have to wind the spring as tight as it will go,' "'said Vetinari, and pray it doesn't break.' "'His expression changed. "'Oh, dear,' he said. "'Pardon?' said Leonard. "'He didn't thump the wall. "'I may have gone too far.' Detritus sat and steamed. Now he felt hungry, not for food, but for things to think about. As the temperature sank, the efficiency of his brain increased even more. It needed something to do. He calculated the number of bricks in the wall, first in twos and then in tens and finally in sixteens. The numbers formed up and marched past his brain in terrified obedience. Division and multiplication were discovered, algebra was invented and provided an interesting diversion for a minute or two, and then he felt the fog of numbers drift away, and looked up and saw the sparkling distant mountains of calculus. Trolls evolved in high, rocky, and above all in cold places. Their silicon brains were used to operating at low temperatures, 
but down on the muggy plains the heat build-up slowed them down and made them dull. It wasn't that only stupid trolls came down to the city. Trolls who decided to come down to the city were often quite smart, but they became stupid. Detritus was considered moronic even by city troll standards, but that was simply because his brain was naturally optimised for a temperature seldom reached in Ankh-Morpork, even during the coldest winter. Now his brain was nearing its ideal temperature of operation. Unfortunately, this was pretty close to a troll's optimum point of death. Part of his brain gave some thought to this. There was a high probability of rescue. That meant he'd have to leave. That meant he'd become stupid again, as sure as 10 to the power of 3 multiplied by ME over MP multiplied by omega to the power of 6 times omega to the power of G minus half N equals 10N. Better make the most of it, then. He went back to the world of numbers so complex that they had no meaning, only a transitional point of view, and got on with freezing to death as well. Dibbler reached the Butcher's Guild very shortly after Cuddy. The big red doors had been kicked open, and a small butcher was sitting just inside them rubbing his nose. Which way did he go? That way. And in the Guild's main hall, the master butcher Gerhard Sock was staggering around in circles. This was because Cuddy's boots were planted on his chest. The dwarf was hanging onto the man's vest like a yachtsman tacking into a gale and whirling his axe round and round in front of Sock's face. You give it to me right now or I'll make you eat your own nose. A crowd of apprentice butchers was trying to keep out of the way. But don't argue with me. I'm an officer of the watch, I am. But you... You've got one last chance, mister. Give it to me right now. Sock shut his eyes. What is it you want? The crowd waited. Ah, said Cuddy. Ah, ha, ha. Didn't I say? No. I'm pretty sure I did, you know. You didn't? Oh, well, it's the key to the pork futures warehouse, if you must know. Cuddy jumped down. Why? The axe hovered in front of his nose again. I was just asking, said Sock in a desperate and distant voice. There's a man of the watch in there, freezing to death, said Cuddy. There was quite a crowd around them when they finally got the main door open. Lumps of ice clinked on the stones, and there was a rush of super-cold air. Frost covered the floor and the rows of hanging carcasses on their backwards journey through time. It also covered a detritus-shaped lump, squatting in the middle of the floor. They carried it out into the sunlight. "'Should his eyes be flashing on enough like that?' said Dibbler. "'Can you hear me?' shouted Cuddy. "'Detritus!' Detritus blinked. Ice slid off him in the day's heat. He could feel the cracking up of the marvellous universe of numbers. The rising temperature hit his thoughts like a flamethrower caressing a snowflake. Say something, said Cuddy. Towers of intellect collapsed as the fire roared through Detritus's brain. Hey, look at this, said one of the apprentices. The inner walls of the warehouse were covered with numbers. Equations as complex as a neural network had been scraped in the frost. At some point in the calculation, the mathematician had changed from using numbers to using letters. And then, letters themselves hadn't been sufficient. Brackets like cages enclosed expressions which were to normal mathematics what a city is to a map. They got simpler as the goal neared. Simpler, yet containing in the flowing lines of their simplicity a spartan and wonderful complexity. Cuddy stared at them. He knew he'd never be able to understand them in a hundred years. The frost crumbled in the warmer air. The equations narrowed as they were carried on down the wall and across the floor to where the troll had been sitting, until they became just a few expressions that appeared to move and sparkle with a life of their own. This was maths without numbers, pure as lightning. They narrowed to a point, and at the point was just the very simple symbol, equals. Equals what? said Cuddy. Equals what? The frost collapsed. Cuddy went outside. Detritus was now sitting in a puddle of water, surrounded by a crowd of human onlookers. Can't one of you get him a blanket or something? he said. A very fat man said, Huh? Who'd use a blanket after it had been on a troll? Huh? Yes, good point, said Cuddy. He glanced at the five holes in Detritus's breastplate. They were at about head height for a dwarf. Could you come over here for a moment, please? The man grinned at his friends and sauntered over. I expect you can see the holes in his armour, right? said Cuddy. C.M.O.T. Dibbler was a survivor. 
In the same way that rodents and insects can sense an earthquake ahead of the first tremors, so he could tell if something big was about to go down on the street. Cuddy was being too nice. When a dwarf was nice like that, it meant he was saving up to be nasty later on. I'll just, er, uh, go about my business then, he said, and backed away. I've got nothing against dwarfs, mind you, said the fat man. I mean, dwarfs is practically people in my book. Just shorter humans, almost. But trolls, well, they're not the same as us, right? Excuse me, excuse me, gangway, gangway, said Dibbler, achieving with his cart the kind of getaway customarily associated with vehicles that have fluffy dice on the windscreen. That's a nice coat you've got there said Cuddy. Dibbler's cart went around the corner on one wheel. It's a nice coat, said Cuddy. You know what you should do with a coat like that? The man's forehead wrinkled. Take it off right now and give it to the troll. Why, you little... The man grabbed Cuddy by his shirt and wrenched him upwards. The dwarf's hand moved very quickly. There was a scrape of metal. Man and dwarf made an interesting and absolute stationary tableau for a few seconds. Cuddy had been brought up almost level with the man's face and watched with interest as the eyes began to water. Let me down, said Cuddy, gently. I make involuntary muscle movements if I'm startled. The man did so. Now, take off your coat. Good. Just pass it over, thank you. Your axe, the man murmured. Axe? Axe? My axe? Cuddy looked down. Well, well, well. Hardly knew I was holding it there. My axe? Well, there's a thing. The man was trying to stand on tiptoe. His eyes were watering. The thing about this axe, said Cuddy, the interesting thing is that it's a throwing axe. I was champion three years running up at Copperhead. I could draw it and split a twig thirty yards away in one second behind me, and I was ill that day, a bilious attack. He backed away. The man sank gratefully onto his heels. Cuddy draped the coat over the troll's shoulders. Come on, on your feet, he said. Let's get you home. The troll lumbered upright. How many fingers am I holding up, said Cuddy. Detritus peered. Two and one, he suggested. It'll do said Cuddy, for a start. Mr Cheese looked over the bar at Captain Vimes, who hadn't moved for an hour. The bucket was used to serious drinkers who drank without pleasure, but with a sort of determination never to see sobriety again. But this was something new. This was worrying. He didn't want a death on his hands. There was no one else in the bar. He hung his apron on a nail and hurried out towards the watchhouse, almost colliding with Carrot and Angua in the doorway. Oh, I'm glad that it's you, Corporal Carrot, he said. You'd better come. It's Captain Vimes. What's happened to him? I don't know. He's drunk an awful lot. I thought he was off the stuff. I think, said Mr Cheese cautiously, that this is not the case any more. A scene somewhere near Quarry Lane. Where are we going? I'm going to get someone to have a look at you. Not Dwarf Doctor. There must be someone up here who knows how to slap some quick-drying cement on you, or whatever you do. Should you be oozing like that? Dunno. Never oozed before. Where we? Dunno. Never been down here before. The area was on the windward side of the cattle yards and the slaughterhouse district. That meant it was shunned as living space by everyone except trolls, to whom the organic odours were about as relevant and noticeable as the smell of granite would be to humans. The old joke went, the trolls live next to the cattle yard? What about the stench? Oh, the cattle don't mind. Which was daft, trolls didn't smell, except to other trolls. There was a slabby look about the buildings here. They'd been built for humans, but adapted by trolls, which broadly had meant kicking the doorways wider and blocking up the windows. It was still daylight. There weren't any trolls visible. said Detritus. Come on, big man, said Cuddy, pushing Detritus along like a tug pushes a tanker. Lance Constable Cuddy. Yes. You a dwarf. This is Quarry Lane. You found here, you in deep trouble. We are city guards. 
Cries o' praise, he not give a coprolith about that stuff. Cuddy looked around. What do you people use for doctors anyway? A troll face appeared in a doorway. And another. And another. What Cuddy had thought was a pile of rubble turned out to be a troll. There were suddenly trolls everywhere. I'm a guard, thought Cuddy. That's what Sergeant Colon said. Stop being a dwarf and start being a watchman. That's what I am. Not a dwarf, a watchman. They gave me a badge shaped like a shield. City watch, that's me. I carry a badge. Hm. I wish it was a lot bigger. Vimes was sitting quietly at a table in the corner of the bucket. There were some pieces of paper and a handful of metal objects in front of him, but he was staring at his fist. It was lying on the table, clenched so tight the knuckles were white. Captain Vimes, said Carrot, waving a hand in front of his eyes. There was no response. How much has he had? Two nips of whiskey, that's all. That shouldn't do this to him, even on an empty stomach, said Carrot. Angua pointed at the neck of a bottle protruding from Vimes's pocket. I don't think he's been drinking on an empty stomach, she said. I think he put some alcohol in it first. Captain Vimes, said Carrot again. What's he holding in his hand, said Angua. I don't know. This is bad. I've never seen him like this before. Come on, you take the stuff. I'll take the captain. He hasn't uh, paid for his drink, said Mr. Cheese. Angua and Carrot looked at him. On the house, said Mr. Cheese. There was a wall of trolls around Cuddy. It was as good a choice of word as any. Right now their attitude was more of surprise than menace, such as dogs might show if a cat had just sauntered into the kennels. But when they'd finally got used to the idea that he really existed, it was probably only a matter of time before this state of affairs no longer obtained. Finally one of them said, "'What this then?' "'He a man of the watch, same as me,' said Detritus. "'Him a dwarf. He a watchman. Him got bloody cheek, I know that.' A stubby troll finger prodded Cuddy in the back. The trolls crowded in. A count to ten, said Detritus. Then any troll not going about that troll's business. He a sorry troll. You Detritus, said a particularly wide troll. Everyone know you stupid troll. You join watch because stupid troll. You can't count to wham. One, said Detritus. Two. Three. Four, uh, five, uh, six. The recumbent troll looked up in amazement. That detritus him counting? There was a whirring noise and an axe bounced off the wall near detritus's head. There were dwarfs coming up the street with a purposeful and deadly air. The trolls scattered. Cuddy ran forward. What are you lot doing? he said. Are you mad or something? A dwarf pointed a trembling finger at Detritus. What's that? He's a watchman. Looks like a troll to me. Get it. Cuddy took a step backwards and produced his axe. I know you strong in the arm, he said. What's this all about? You know, watch man, said strong in the arm. The watch say a troll killed Bjorn Hammerhock. They found the troll. No, that's not... There was a sound behind Cuddy. The trolls were back, armed for Dwarf. Detritus turned around and waved a finger at them. Any troll move, he said, and I start counting. Hammerhock was killed by a man, said Cuddy. Captain Vimes thinks. The watch have got the troll, said a dwarf. Damn rocks. Great suckers. Monoliths. Eaters of rats. Huh? I've been a man only hardly any time, said Detritus, and already I fed up with you stupid trolls. What you think humans say, eh? Oh, them ethnic, them don't know how to behave in a big city. Go around weaving clubs at the drop of a thing you wear on your head. We're watchmen, said Cuddy. Our job is to keep the peace. Good, said Strong in the Arm. Go and keep it safe somewhere until we need it. This is not Coombe Valley, said Detritus. That's right, shouted a dwarf at the back of the crowd. This time we can see you. Trolls and dwarfs were pouring in at either end of the street. What would Corporal Carrot do at a time like this, whispered Cuddy. He say, you bad people make me angry, you stop 
Toot sweet. And then they'd go away, right? Yeah. What would happen if we tried that? We look in gutter for our heads. I think you're right. You see that alley? It's a nice alley. It's a hello. You outnumbered. 256 plus 64 plus 8 plus 2 plus 1 to 1. Drop in and see me. A club bounced off Detritus's helmet. Run! The two watchmen sprinted for the alley. The impromptu armies watched them, and then, differences momentarily forgotten, gave chase. Where'd this go? It goes away from the people chasing us. I like this alley. Behind them, the pursuers, suddenly trying to make progress in a gap barely wide enough to accommodate a troll, realised that they were pushing and shoving with their mortal enemies and started to fight one another in the quickest, nastiest and, above all, narrowest battle ever held in the city. Cuddy waved Detritus to a halt and peered around a corner. "'I think we're safe,' he said. "'All we have to do is get out of the other end of this and get back to the watch-house, okay?' He turned around failed to see the troll, took a step forward, and vanished temporarily from the world of men. "'Oh, no,' said Sergeant Colon. "'He promised he wasn't going to touch it any more. "'Look, he's had a hold, Bartle.' "'What is it? Bear, Agus?' said Nobby. "'Shouldn't think so. He's still breeding. "'Come on, help me up with him.' The night watch clustered around. Carrot had deposited Captain Vimes on a chair in the middle of the watchhouse floor. Angua picked out the bottle and looked at the label. C-M-O-T Dibbler's Genuine Authentic Soggy Mountain Dew, she read. He's going to die. It says 150% proof. Nah, that's just old Dibbler's advertising, said Nobby. It ain't got no proof, just circumstantial evidence. Why hasn't he got his sword, said Angua. Vimes opened his eyes. The first thing he saw was the concerned face of Nobby. Burr, he said. So... Give it away. Hooray. What? said Colon. No more. Whoosh. Or guy. I think he's a bit drunk, said Carrot. Drunk? Who's a drunk? Who a jack on me drunk if I was sober? Get him some coffee, said Angua. I reckon he's beyond our coffee, said Colon. Nobby, nip along to Fat Sally's in Squeeze Belly Alley and get a jug of that special clatchy and stuff. Not a metal jug, mind. Vimes blinked as they manhandled him into a chair. All go away, he said. Bang, bang. Lady Shibble's gonna be really mad, said Nobby. You know he promised to leave it alone. Captain Vimes, said Carrot. Hmm? How many fingers am I holding up? Mm-hmm. How many hands, then? Four. Blimey, I haven't seen him like this for years, said Colon. Here, let me try some. Want another drink, Captain? He certainly doesn't need an... Shut up, I know what I'm doing. Another drink, Captain Vimes? Mm-hmm. I've never known him not to be able to give a loud, clear yes, said Colon, standing back. I think we'd better get him up to his room. I'll take him, poor chap, said Carrot. He lifted Vimes easily and slung him over his shoulder. I hate to see him like this, said Angua, following him into the hallway and up the stairs. He only drinks when he gets depressed, said Carrot. Why does he get depressed? Sometimes it's because he hasn't had a drink. The house in Pseudopolis Yard had originally been a Ramkin family residence. Now the first floor was occupied by the guards on an ad hoc basis. Carrot had a room. Nobby had rooms consecutively, four so far, moving out when the floor became hard to find and Vimes had a room. More or less. It was hard to tell. Even a prisoner in a cell manages to stamp his personality on it somewhere, but Angua had never seen such an unlived-in room. "'This is where he lives?' said Angua. "'Good grief!' "'What did you expect?' "'I don't know. Anything. Something. Not nothing.' There was a joyless iron bedstead. The springs and mattress had sagged so that they formed a sort of mould, forcing anyone who got into it to instantly fold into a sleeping position. There was a washstand under a broken mirror. On the stand was a razor carefully aligned towards the hub because Vimes shared the folk belief that this kept it sharp. There was a brown wooden chair with the cane seat broken and a small chest at the foot of the bed. And that was all. I mean, at least a rug, 
said Angua. A picture on the wall. Something. Carrot deposited Vimes on the bed where he flowed unconsciously into the shape. Haven't you got something in your room? Angua asked. Yes, I've got a cutaway diagram of number five shaft at home. It's very interesting strata. I helped cut it. And some books and things. Captain Vimes isn't really an indoors kind of person. But there's not even a candle. He finds his way to bed by memory, he says. Or an ornament or, or anything. There's a sheet of cardboard under the bed, Carrot volunteered. I remember I was with him in Filigree Street when he found it. He said, there's a month's souls in this, if I'm any judge. He was very pleased about that. He can't even afford boots? I don't think so. I know Lady Sybil offered to buy him all the new boots he wanted, and he got a bit offended about that. He seems to try to make them last. But you can buy boots, and you get less than him, and you send money home. He must drink it all, the idiot. Don't think so. I didn't think he'd touched the stuff for months. Lady Sybil got him onto cigars. Vimes snored loudly. How can you admire a man like this, said Angua. He's a very fine man. Angua raised the lid of the wooden chest with her foot. Hey, I don't think you should do that, said Carrot wretchedly. I'm just looking, said Angua. No law against that. In fact, under the Privacy Act of 1467, it is an affair. There's only old boots and stuff, and some paper. She reached down and picked up a crudely made book. It was merely a wad of irregular shaped bits of paper sandwiched together between card covers. That belongs to the captain. She opened the book and read a few lines. Her mouth dropped open. Will you look at this? No wonder he never has any money. What do you mean? He spends it on women. You wouldn't think it, would you? Look at this entry, four in one week. Carrot looked over her shoulder. On the bed, Vimes snorted. There on the page in Vimes's curly handwriting were the words, Mrs Gaskin, Mincing Street, five dollars. Mrs Scurrick, Treacle Street, four dollars. Mrs Maroon, Wigson's Alley, four dollars. Annabel Curry, Lobsneaks, two dollars. End of CD 5